0: Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father John Flader entitled The History and Meaning of Lent. This recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father John Flader is a priest of the Opus Dei Prelature and was previously the director of the Catholic Adult Education Center. Constitute uh, or constituted by three of the columns in my book, uh, Question Time, or three columns in the Catholic Weekly. And they were numbers 143, The Origin of Lent. I'm going to go then to 145, The Spirit of Fasting. And then 144, What Can We Do for Lent? And yes, uh, there's only two weeks to go until Good Friday. But uh, it's never too late. And even if we're doing something, we could perhaps do a little bit more. And um, let's go back to the, the origin of Lent, the history of Lent, and the meaning of the, well, the word. The word Lent comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, Lenten, meaning springtime. This year, when I was preaching on it and reflecting on it, it occurred to me that when I was growing up, two, two dramatic, more or less dramatic things happened in springtime. One was that mothers did spring cleaning. You had a, a very fierce winter, and then spring came, and you opened the windows again. And we boys and the men had to take off the storm windows, which were a second pane of glass to give you a little bit of insulation from the, the cold, which would go to minus 20 or minus 30, and uh, put on the fly screens and wash the windows while you did that. And mothers did the spring cleaning. and. In this, we spring clean the soul in Lent. A couple of weeks ago, we had in the Sunday Gospel the, the passage of our Lord cleansing the temple. And he said, take all, all of this out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And in the Lenten program that I wrote for the Archdiocese called um, "Hope: Christ Our Hope, I quoted St. Paul, who speaks about the temple, and he said, For the temple of God is sacred, and you are that temple. And our Lord tells us, take all of this out of you. So we look, what do I need to take out of my life in Lent? Something that's an encumbrance, something that's an attachment, something that I do too much of and isn't really benefiting my soul. And uh, so you look at attachments. You're too attached to television. You watch too much. The radio is always on. I've driven people's cars when they've lent it to me. And you turn on the key, and you get blasted by the, uh, by the rock music. And you turn that down or off, generally. And uh, so you suspected that the rock music went on with ignition and off with ignition. And all the time, that poor person was driving. They were getting bombarded by this loud music. And um, so maybe we listen to the radio all the time in the car, or we drink too much, or we smoke too much, or we eat too much, or we eat between meals. Or we have a box of chocolate stationed very strategically somewhere where nobody else knows where it is. So we think, but the children have long since discovered it. But they don't take too many, and uh, we can have a chocolate as we pass the, the location. So uh, it's spring spring cleaning time, and Lent is a time we look at what we're doing that perhaps too much of a distraction, and we give it up for a while, and. Um, while I say that, let me just give you my a my, uh, bit of experience and plan that the, the, the plan arises from the experience. Now, I'm doing what I always do, and it's getting off the track. But I'm going to put up my watch and let you warn me when the time has come, at least by 9 o'clock, just give me the five-minute warning, and that'll be the end. Um, but one of the things that we do in Lent that I've found over the years is that When Lent, during the rest of the year, you've got a base level of mortification, of penance, self-denial, and it's at a certain level. And then Ash Wednesday comes. Okay, now, suddenly you shoot up. So from Ash Wednesday on, you're you're at a higher level, all sorts of things special. Not only self-denial, there's three areas which we'll come to. So you're up there for Lent, and hopefully you keep it up across to Lent. And then you get to um, Holy Saturday, and then Easter Sunday comes. And then you don't stay up there, you drop down. But you don't drop down to the base level you had here. This little mortification, you say, that's been doing me a lot of good. I think I'll just keep that up. So the next year, your base level is a little bit higher. And this happens every then. So you add a little bit more, and then you take most of it off, but your base level keeps rising. So over the years, you're doing a little bit more penance than you were before. And that, that's how it ought to be, I think. And, uh, and the reason for that is something else, which is when you get very, very, very old like me, really old, then when you look back, you see all these years of sin. And, and that accumulation tells you something that I better do something about this. And then you look forward, probably about right, there's about two thirds of the way back there and one third of the way to that door, which will leave me at about 100 and a few. And um, and then since the time remaining is getting shorter, well, you think, I've got to make up for all of that. I don't have as much time, so I better do a bit more penance. So you uh, hopefully, as life goes on, you do more rather than less. And while I'm on that, when it comes to fasting, I'm getting really ahead of myself here. But as we all know, the people obliged by the law of fasting in the church are all those who have reached the age of 18 and have uh, uh, not yet celebrated their 59th birthday, and you say, why would the church ever adopt a number like 59? And the reason is Latin, because you're, when you uh, when you reach your 59th birthday, you are in your 60th year. So they want round numbers, and uh, so 60th is the round number. But that for us in in countries like this and everywhere in the world, it's when you're 59. So you get to be 59, and you don't have to fast anymore. Um, Well, I think that anybody who says, thank God, I'm 59. I don't have to fast anymore is foolish, because they've got 59 years or 52 years of sin behind them, starting from the age of seven when you reach the age of reason. And uh, it's time to do more, not less. So anyway, that's um, perhaps some exhortation about how we might live Lent in general. So on the one hand, springtime means spring cleaning. On the other hand, it means new growth. And I came from Wisconsin, where there was snow on the ground for the better part of three months, always some snow and often a lot of snow. What we did for ice skating was the the fire department would come to the, the football field in the back of the school and flood it. So then uh, you had this ice rink or before you had grass. And then when it snowed, the, the uh, snow plows would come and get the snow off. And then it flooded again, so the, the ice was nice and, nice and clean. And uh, so it stayed frozen all winter until springtime came, and then it started to thaw, and you couldn't ice skate. And so there's new growth in the trees. Practically all the trees except pines were deciduous. And oh, stark and barren. And then spring with little buds that first appeared a touch of green and full leaf afterwards. And then your grass was brown when the ice melted and it became green again. And flowers came up from beneath the, the soil as well. And so there was new growth. And there's new growth in Lent. When we do more for God, that spiritual life takes off. We become more holy more close to God, more spiritual. So the very name Lenten or springtime suggests at least two ways that we can live Lent by spring cleaning and new growth in the spiritual life. Well, how far back in the church do we have to go to find the beginning of Lent? St. Leo the Great, Pope in the middle of the 5th century, says it was instituted by the apostles. And I'll read a quote from him later. So it goes back to the beginning in one way or another. And traditionally, it's been lived by three different practices, which are, as we know, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And I'll come back to that in the third part of this talk. Well, Lent was begun from the beginning. And in the first three centuries, so we're looking back already then long before Pope Leo the Great, The period of fasting was was more limited, one or two days, or a week at most. Now, why would they do fasting in any case but to prepare for Easter? One thing you find in the history of the Church and in the liturgy of the Church is that big feast days are preceded by fast days, by penance. So we don't just come to the big feast. We prepare for it spiritually by some self-denial or extra prayer. And so that's the meaning, of course, of of Lent. But it was short in the beginning, one or two fast days. Mind you, we've gone full cycle. We're now back to two fast days, Ash Wednesday, Good Friday. We can argue about whether that's the best. And I've got a quote from Pope John Paul II, which I didn't bring when I was doing my prayer this afternoon. I said, I've got to get that quote from John Paul. I'll tell you more what it said later. So relatively short. Uh, period of fasting and preparation for Easter in the first three centuries. The first mention of 40 days was in the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea, the first Ecumenical Council, in 325, the beginning of the fourth century. So then 40 days. And by the end of the fourth century, the custom was widespread in both East and West, 40 days of fasting and prayer leading up to Easter. And why 40? Because Christ fasted for 40 days in the desert before beginning his public life. And of course, the two figures that appeared with him in the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, also fasted for 40 days. Moses, when he was on the mountain to receive the 10 commandments, and Elijah, when he'd been given the cakes to eat, and then he had to walk for 40 days to the mountain of the Lord. As regards the symbolism, St. Augustine says that the season of Lent symbolizes life on Earth with its trials and tribulations, its sacrifices. And the Easter season, with its hallelujahs, symbolizes the joys of heaven. It's a nice way to look at it. And while we're on Earth, let's do that penance. Let's um, pray more and live the um, the sacrifice to follow our Lord so that we will have greater joy in heaven. And if you wonder, by the way, whether those who do more on earth might be rewarded with more in heaven, then you can read my column in the Catholic Weekly some time ago, and I can't remember when, but it said, definitely there's a difference of happiness in heaven. And we would expect that. We would expect Our Lady and St. Joseph and the great saints of history to be higher up than we will be. And that's only right. Now, in the East, the period of fasting was spread over seven weeks with both Saturday and Sunday exempt, whereas in the West, the period was six weeks with Sundays exempt. Let's just look at the six weeks without Sundays. And of course, we get six times six or 36 days of fasting. But they really wanted 40. So what can we do about this? In the 7th century, they added on the days back to Ash Wednesday. So four days from Ash Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sundays off, and then we have the full 40 days. So one thing always to remember when we're living Lent, it's up to us what we want to do about it, and that is that Sundays are never days of penance. Sundays are a little Easter the way it's, it's put. It's the day of the resurrection. So do what you want on Sundays, but you don't need to uh, to fast or do the more strict things that you do during the rest of Lent. And for myself, I was um, just thinking this year. There's a number of things that I'm doing, and most of them I generally keep up on Sunday too. But I thought to myself, wait a sec, we have to celebrate Sunday. So... Of the things you're doing, which one are you not going to do on Sunday? So it's different. So let's celebrate Sunday. Let's do something different on Sundays. And when you look at the um, the liturgical uh, structure of Lent, we've got the first Sunday of Lent, and then the first week of Lent follows that. And the days before are a kind of tail. They're an appendage. They don't seem to fit. They're not in the first week of Lent. They're before the first week of Lent. And, uh, and that's the reason that Lent started first with 40 days, and then the, only in the seventh in century did they add on the, the days from Ash Wednesday to Holy Saturday. From the fifth century on, the fast was very strict. So you might have had fewer days in the early centuries, but when you did get the, uh, the full 40 days, it was very strict. Only one meal was allowed and towards evening. So you don't eat anything until the evening meal. And during Lent, in that evening meal, no meat, even on Sundays. And then fish as well was forbidden, and in most places, eggs and dairy products as well. Now, this is the case today in the Eastern tradition. The Orthodox, and I suspect the Maronites don't follow this, um, but... Um, the Eastern tradition, in general, gives up during those forty days all. The simple way to look at it is all vertebrates. That's not vitebrates <laughs> nor nor uh, vertebrates aren't green vitebrates. No. Um, it's um, it's vertebrates. That's things with a backbone, and all products of the same. So when Lent comes, your your logical thought process goes like this: Oh. We can't eat meat. Oof. We'll have to eat fish. No, you can't eat fish. They have backbones. Well, then we can eat cheese. No, that comes from cows. Well, we can at least eat eggs. No, those come from chickens. Uh, We we will drink milk and and ice. No, you can't have that. That comes from cows. So, (laughs) you start realizing that there's practically nothing left. So it's nuts and legumes and a few things to get your proteins and and you become a vegetarian. And it does you a lot of good. So that Eastern tradition remains, for those who live it to the full, very demanding. Over the, over time, the rules of fasting gradually evolved. Eventually, a smaller meal was allowed during the day instead of just the one full meal in the evening to keep up your strength for manual labor, remembering that the uh, The computer age and the office work didn't exist in those days. It was mostly agriculture and mining and whatever else they did. It was always manual, so they needed extra nutrition for that. Eating fish then became allowed, and later meat was also allowed through the week, except on Ash Wednesday and the Fridays of Lent. Then dispensations were given for eating dairy products. If a pious work was performed... And eventually, this rule was relaxed altogether. So dairy products, the products of the, the animal, were not forbidden after a while. One thing that um, is interesting, just a um, matter of terminology, that um, in Brazil, I think, they celebrate the carnivale before Lent. So shrove Tuesdays, we might call it. Shrove coming from shriving. Uh, having your your sins forgiven, um, they celebrate the carnivale. And the etymology of that for the Latin scholars, and well, the Latin scholars know what it is, but the rest of us need to be told farewell to meat, carne vale. So farewell to meat, no more meat until Easter. That's the origin of the, the name carnivale or carnival. Um, Now, I have in my notes something that um, the exact meaning of it all, I'm not too sure, but let's just say what it is. Um, the abstinence from even dairy products led to the practice of blessing Easter eggs and eating pancakes on Shrove Tuesday, the day before Ash Wednesday. Now, the blessing of Easter eggs, they didn't eat eggs during Lent, so maybe they blessed eggs and then kept them until Easter, but six and a half weeks later, I don't know how good the egg will be. I guess if you, if you... If you boil it it might just be preserved anyway i'm not too sure of the meaning of that and then the pancakes as well there's eggs and pancakes i guess but um pancake tuesday is definitely a tradition so if anybody somebody might know why pancake tuesday but it may be because there were eggs and pancakes and they weren't going to eat eggs for the rest of lent so let's let's indulge like with the meat carnivale let's have plenty of meat and enjoy ourselves before this austere season begins well until the second vatican council and i was one of these really old people that was alive before the second vatican council and even old enough to have to live the fasting all adults fasted on all the 40 days of lent of course except um, sundays eating only one full meal and two smaller meals that together didn't add up to the full meal and and nothing in between meals. And of course, we abstained from meat on Ash Wednesday and all the Fridays of Lent. So that was something that the whole church did. Then that was relaxed. And the reason given at the time was that there's so much hunger in the world that to impose abstinence from food was excessive in certain countries and certain peoples, at least. And that's quite understandable, but those people probably were fasting every day of the year without enough food and weren't able to deny themselves in Lent anyway. They were denying themselves all the time. And um, so whatever the rationale, that's what happened. And now Lent is down to, in this country, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, both days of fast and abstinence. And many Australians still think that we can't eat meat on the Fridays of Lent. Mm-hmm. And so they, uh, they think they're doing wrong if they had meat on a Friday of Lent. And they're not, objectively speaking. Now, the, um, the comment from the pope was very interesting, to John Paul II. Speaking, I think it was to the clergy of Rome, and he departed from his prepared address And he looked at the practice of the church in its its Lenten discipline, and he said, I'm just trying to remember the words. It's more or less like this. I did quote it um, a few times during Lent in my meditations. And sometimes I think our other Christian brethren and Muslims have it better than we do, or they're leaving us behind. And he considered the Muslim Ramadan, where you don't eat any, nothing crosses your lips, even water, from sunrise to sunset. And yes, they do eat a lot before sunrise and something after sunset, but that's a long time when you're working, and it's in the southern hemisphere, it's summer, and you're you're sweating perhaps, and you can't drink any water. So it is, it is rigorous, and it's long as well. And then he looked at the Eastern tradition of going without the uh, the vertebrates and products of vertebrates. And uh, he looked back at the Catholic Church, (laughs) where, like, the poor sister, the the Cinderella, that that was left behind in the area of self-denial. Now, other people would say, hooray, we're miles ahead of them. We can still enjoy ourselves. But in a spiritual sense, to follow our Lord's invitation, if we want to be his disciples, to deny ourselves up our cross daily not only in Lent daily and and follow him are we truly living that so what it becomes for us then is it's it's completely up to us what are we going to do for Lent now i'll go to the the thing on fasting because somebody asked the question um understanding that Lent is about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, and they could understand prayer and almsgiving charity, but somehow the whole idea of denying yourself food didn't seem to make much sense, and how is it supposed to help us? So I wrote, this is the, the gist of the answer that I wrote, which is in the book. Um, well, we start with Jesus fasting himself for 40 days, and if he did it, Not that we have to do it for 40 days and fast totally, but he did it. And what is more, he recommended fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, which is read in the Gospel on Ash Wednesday. He says, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that no one will know you are fasting, except your father who sees all that is done in secret, and your father who sees all that is done in secret will reward you. So he is assuming that people fast. And remember, too, when the the Pharisees and others asked him, why do the Pharisees fast and your disciples do not? And then he said, well, when the bridegroom is with them, they don't fast. But when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. So obviously he is is telling the church that we should fast at least some of the time. There must be something good about it. And um, now... I clarified what we mean by fasting because people tell me from time to time, oh, I'm fasting on, for example, Wednesdays and Fridays. And then I have to ask them, well, what do you mean by that? Because the word fasting is not univocal. It doesn't have just one meaning. It's, it's, uh, it has a number of meanings of what we make of it. What the Church makes of it for Ash Wednesday and Good Friday is what we said before. One full meal, two smaller meals, no eating between meals. So that's a sense of fasting. Often when people speak of fasting or think of fasting, they think of not eating anything at all. And this many people live with that 40 hour fast in solidarity with the hungry in the world. And I think their idea would be, well, for 40 hours, I'm not going to eat anything. Forty hours isn't all that long, but um, it's still rigorous. By the way, one thing about fasting that, um, in in books about the history of Opus Dei I discovered, when in Spain during the the Civil War, there was a real scarcity of food in Madrid and other places, but a real scarcity, and they were they were always hungry. Then these these fellows of Opus Dei, together with the St. Jose Maria, discovered a way of managing the little bit of food you had to minimize the discomfort. And it was, well, starting from the fact that when you're asleep, you don't feel hungry. So, let's make the big meal breakfast. So that we can go through the day with whatever little beans and whatever we've had, that's not fueled us, but at least it's satisfied the hunger for a short time. So you go through the day having eaten breakfast, not feeling too much hungry hunger until the end of the day. Then you go to bed ravenously hungry, but you don't feel hungry while you're asleep. Then you wake up ravenously hungry and you eat the big meal. So if you ever need to do something like that, remember this this wisdom that only somebody that was really suffering hunger would <laughs> would come up with. I wouldn't have thought of it uh, theoretically, but if you're hungry, I think you you realize, and you you live it that way. Now, this isn't relevant to Lent either, so just keep warning me of it. Um, okay, so we there must be something good about fasting because Jesus recommends it, and he does it himself. So, And then other people will fast in terms of the definition by eating just bread and water. So fasting is what we make of it. I would say the minimum of fast Minimum would be what the church demands. The Maronites, by the way, there's a few here, I suspect, um, if they live it, what the church suggests is, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't eat anything until the noon meal. Is that right? Well, I think that's what some. In this this column, I think, that I put that the Maronites um, eat and drink nothing until midday. And then Father Peter Joseph was the censor for the book. And when he saw this, he said, well, look, not all Maronites live that. So why do you put many Maronites? Right. So that's what, that's what appears here, and that's what's in my notes now. So fasting, in, 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 in a word, is what you make of it. Now, but why do we fast? We should remember, when we approach the topic, that fasting is not only done for religious reasons. Uh, fasting in the, in the generic sense. There's a lot of people in Sydney, in Australia, who fast for other reasons. They cannot understand why we would fast for religious reasons. But they're fasting for other reasons. You've got, on the one hand, the sportsmen, who have to deny themselves all sorts of foods that they like, eat other foods that they're not too keen on, but it will keep them more fit. So it's both the sports and then the fitness. And and often, of course, doctors are recommending that people go on diets for their health. And that's fitness or health. It's, in a sense, another reason. And many people are not not necessarily going hungry, but not eating the things that they would really like to eat and having to eat things that they don't like. And uh, so there's another reason why many people are fasting. And then people fast for political reasons. And you have these hunger strikes. And people do that in prison. They just get angry with the regime, they're not getting anywhere, and they go on a hunger strike, and we've heard about that in the last few weeks. So, people fast for all sorts of reasons, and sometimes it's, it's sheer vanity, if you like. They don't, they're looking too fat, so they want to look a bit slim, and they'll look nicer, so, for, for vanity. And, uh, and they had no problem with that. They understand why they do it, and other people understand why they do it. But we suggest fasting for religious reasons, and I think we're, we're crazy. Now, why do we fast, and what, what, what benefits do come from, from fasting and penance in general? First of all, we are following our Lord's invitation. If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If we indulge ourselves all the time, we are hardly his disciples. So in a general sense, we are showing that we love him by taking up some form of cross. It need not be fasting, but it can be as well. And then in a spiritual sense, it shows reverence for God and his creation by giving back to him something of what he has given us, just as the Jews in the Old Testament would offer up to God the firstborn of their flocks and herds, and the first fruits from their crops. God had given them this, and then the first fruits were for God, sacrificed back to him, they would do without those. And that can be one of the senses of fasting. God has given us, in this country especially, an abundance of food, so we can forego some of it. In a sense, give it back to him. We don't have to eat everything. We can have that detachment and recognize that it came from him as a gift. So we don't take all of what he gives. And then it exercises certain virtues, as all as penance does. Fortitude, or willpower, and temperance, where we don't take everything that the, the sense appetite desires. So we grow, then, in self-mastery, and, and through that, in freedom. I mean, how many people? cannot say no to a chocolate, or to a beer, or to a cigarette, or whatever, or to drugs, of course, and the addictive substances. And when we can say no to legitimate food, or seasonings, or whatever, then we acquire more self-mastery, and we're able to say no to things that would be harmful, including various other temptations to sin not involving food or drink. And then, too, fasting can be offered up for others. So we know lots of people who have great needs, whether it be spiritual needs to come back to the practice of the faith, to go to confession, to marry in the church, to keep that marriage together because there's so much bitterness and arguing and, and health needs, people that have cancer and are suffering and people that are dying and we want them to get to heaven and accept that a priest come to visit them. And A good way to pray is our self-denial, fasting included. And uh, when we pray only with our lips or our mind, God hears us. When we add to that our personal self-offering, God hears it and he sees We're really earnest about this. And it helps us, too, when we've acquired that self-mastery, to overcome temptations of the devil. And in, in a related episode in the Gospel, when the apostles could not cast out a devil from the young boy, and our Lord came and cast it out, the apostles asked, why could we not cast it out? He answered, this kind can only come out through prayer and fasting. So in a sense, we banish the devil, through prayer and fasting. And the more we do that, the stronger we are. The devil finds it much harder to get through our fortress. But a very important point on this, and I like to uh, to say this because I'm sure it's true. The devil, when he sees somebody getting close to God through a life of penance and prayer, becoming, growing in holiness, is losing that soul. And he's getting furious. And he's got one last card to play. And this last card can sometimes be very successful. And that is the card of spiritual pride. So this person is fasting on bread and water every Wednesday and every Friday. And I do it on Mondays and Saturdays as well. And then they, they think how good they are, and nobody else does anything like this. And then they start to tell other people how much they're doing. And, and, uh, and then they've just collapsed the whole edifice of sanctity by spiritual pride. And the devil finally got them at the end. They were getting very close to God. But spiritual pride can make it all come undone. So we have to be very careful of that. Um, so there's plenty of reasons for fasting. And let's read now Pope Leo the Great in the fifth century, where he said, in a sermon on Lent, and so, dearly beloved, what every Christian should always be doing must now be performed more earnestly and more devoutly. These 40 days instituted by the apostles, I suppose it's not so clear that the apostles instituted 40 days, because that seemed to come in the fourth century. But the idea of preparing for the resurrection by fasting instituted by the Apostles. These 40 days instituted by the Apostles should be given over to fasting, which means not simply a reduction in our food, but the elimination of our evil habits. Why don't we fast from sin, (laughs) from our more common sins or occasions of sin, to these sensible and holy fasts. Now, the word sensible should be understood not as it makes a lot of sense, but um, penances in the senses, so the, the sense of taste, the sense of, of touch, of hearing. To these sensible and holy fasts, we should link almsgiving, charity, which, under the one name of mercy, covers a multitude of praiseworthy deeds of charity. Thus, all the faithful, even though unequal to one another in their worldly possessions, should be equal in the drive of their spiritual lives. So very important, and we'll come to this now, the other ways of living Lent, that we don't limit ourselves to something like fasting, but always accompany it by prayer, and always love, of course, and charity. Because a person who is very austere in their own life of fasting and is impossible to live with, isn't kind, is abrupt, is impatient, that's not the spirit. So always accompany whatever we're doing internally, but lots of kindness, lots of charity, self-giving, cheerfulness, love, and of course, prayer. So the other question that I answered was what to do for Lent. And um, here when we talk with people, we get all sorts of different answers from, oh, is Lent begun? I I've, I've found that one's halfway through Lent with it. Practicing Catholic, oh, has it begun already? Um, to, oh, oh, I try to say my prayers a bit better. It's good, very good. Um, and then often children are the ones that really edify you. And children, we ask children in the school, what are you doing for Lent? I'm giving up lollies, I'm giving up going to the tuck shop, and I put the money in Project Compassion, I'm giving up ice cream. I'm giving up soft drinks. And if they're heroic, but some children are absolutely heroic. You wouldn't believe this. I'm giving up McDonald's. (laughs) So that's the supreme sacrifice, McDonald's. So probably every Sunday they say, mom, can we go to McDonald's It's Sunday? Um, Okay. now we're going back to the, the three principal and traditional ways of living Lent which are there in the Sermon on the Mount and they're read in the Gospel of Ash Wednesday, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So let's start with prayer. By this we mean all aspects of our relationship with God, of the spiritual life. So prayer in the strict sense. Maybe we could do that meditation that we always had in mind and we never got around to. By the way... People often say, I'll do it when I get around to it. Has anybody ever seen a round to it? I've seen it. It's a little round. So this is the one I saw was plastic. It was round. It was like a ring rosary, but maybe a bit thicker, and then this one happened to be green, I think. Green plastic. It was just round with a hole in the middle. And and you give this to someone, and they say, what's that? So it's a round to it. T-U-I-T. What are you giving me that for? Because you always said, well, I'll, get, I'll do it when I get around to it. I'm giving you a round to it. You got one. <laughs> you got more excuses. So, um, so that meditation that we always thought of doing, now we could do. Or just to sort of suggest a few things. Go to mass more often. Join the thousands. This is a really heartening thing in Sydney and anywhere, really. Inland, thousands of people in the, the weekday masses in all of the Sydney churches put together. There is thousands. In some city churches, Saint Patrick's would probably have a thousand just in that one church. And you add on other churches that have multiple masses and that have one mass and and it's very it's very heartening. So could we be amongst them? Why should we go to mass? Well the mass is the sacrifice of Calvary, where we celebrate his death and resurrection and we receive him in Holy Communion. We participate in that Paschal sacrifice of Christ by going to Mass. but it's, And it's a sacrifice to go. Let's live a sacrifice. We get up a bit earlier, we don't have as much lunch and we go during lunchtime or whatever. So Mass is a good way to live the aspect of prayer. The Rosary. Maybe we weren't saying the Rosary regularly, we take it up on a regular basis. And then more specifically, Lenten types of prayer would be the Stations of the Cross. So once a week in the we parish, we go and participate in the stations or we can do them on our own. And in my column in the Catholic Weekly four, might be this week, which hasn't yet oh it should be out by now. But I think it's the second of two on the stations. And then the question is asked, When you do the stations on your own, what prayers must you say? And the answer is found in the Incaridian indulgentiarum in the List of Indulgences, which was revised for the last time in 1999, and to gain a plenary indulgence by making the Stations of the Cross, all you have to do is pass from one station to the other and say some brief prayer reflecting on the Passion. You don't have to use any of the approved versions of the Stations. You don't have to say the Our Father, no Mary, Glory Be. Just pass from one to another reflecting on that particular aspect of the passion. But you also have to be the state of grace to receive yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, no, the usual conditions for plenary indulgence, always. OK. So also, have seen the present before the Pope's intentions including that yep. that, is that yep. correct? Good. Right. OK. That's good. Yes. <laughs> very, Thanks. Very knowledgeable. Um, when you say, Father, when you say, pass from one station to the
1: other, it means literally to move, right? yes. Well, yeah.
0: Yes. you don't stay in one seat. Stationary no. and do it. No, you definitely move. That's and it, right. it's also clarified, of course, that when the whole parish or a group are doing the stations together, it's sufficient that one person move, the rest staying in their places. And then another aspect, if you can't, if you're legitimately impeded with the way it was put, from doing the stations, you can, you can pray for a time on the Passion. And how long is that time? Now, here I discovered something that you always suspect when you look at the internet, that maybe what you're looking at, what if it's wrong? So I, when, I, when I write my columns for the weekly, I'll go into Google generally towards the end and just see what else there is. And, and I copied a number of sites on this, this matter, and there's was an English translation of the Latin from the Inchiridion And I found that it is sufficient to pray, to meditate on the Passion for half of an hour. And the, the, the half of an hour, was a little bit strange English, but that's what it said. And then I found another site, and it said the same thing. And then I thought, well, I better just check the Latin. not Not for that particular point, but just to see what the Latin says. Is there anything that's in the Latin that's not in these translations? And I discovered that it said, um, equivalent in Latin, to meditate on the, the sufferings and death of our Lord. Um, for a time, he tempus exempli gratia per orde quadrante. It's a quarter of an hour. <laughs> so somebody had translated half an hour, and then the rest repeated it. So all around on Google you can find a half hour. But if you go to the Latin, it's a quarter of an hour. So at least it's in my column this week, a quarter of an hour. Don't think it's wrong. I looked it up. You can look it up as well. Just put um, Indulgentium Incarnidium Insulgentiarum into Google, and up it comes. And it's the number 132 or something like that. Okay. So so the Way of the Cross. Another thing that's very good, read a book on the Passion during Lent for your spiritual reading. Or take one of the, the Passions in the Gospel and make your way through it slowly. Maybe every day, just reading a little bit, a paragraph or two, and meditating on it. We discover so much when we do that meditative reading or Lectio Divina, meditating on the scriptures. So these are various ways of living that aspect of prayer during Lent, and you'll have lots of other ones, I'm sure. Then fasting, all aspects of self-denial, not only fasting in the strict sense. So here's where giving up the lollies and the soft drinks and uh, we each look at our life and we see, well, what maybe I'm a bit too attached to that I could give up during Lent. And it will be someone that eats too much, well, I'll eat less, or I will live the fast in some way. won't eat between meals. Or um, morning tea, I'll have the coffee or the tea, but I won't have the biscuit. Or we give up the chocolates that we're far too attached to, or we give up alcohol. Maybe we're not too attached to it, but let's give it up for Lent. We do like a beer or a glass of wine with a meal, so we'll give that up maybe except for Sundays. Sundays are always the exception. Um, And um, the smoking and the the television, some people give up television, the radio in the house or the radio in the car, all these things, the, the, the things that we find pleasant, and we simply say, well, I'll give that up for Lent by way of denying myself. Let's see, um, or going back to the fast that we all had before the Second Vatican Council, just having one full meal and two smaller meals. And one of the aspects of the uh, the fasting, when we're denying ourselves something in food, is that thought of solidarity with the hungry. When we're hungry ourselves, when you come to a meal, truly hungry, because you haven't eaten much before, then you might think more readily of people that are always hungry. There's a lot of people who are always hungry. And to do that in solidarity with them, we don't have to send the money of the food we didn't eat to uh, some other cause. We could do that too. But at least to think of them and um, give thanks to God that you have food. And they would give anything to eat the little bit that someone who's fasting is eating. And we get fussy about food. That's another thing. We get fussy. You know, I can't eat that. I don't like it. Uh, well, let's eat it nonetheless and offer it up. Uh, by the way, this is very important. The moral classification of foods, mark two. Moral, this is from me, by the way. You don't have to follow it. It's just a joke. Mm-hmm. But there's, in, in, in mark one of the moral classification of foods, there are five classifications. And they go from heroic, meritorious, neutral, um Sinful and grievously sinful. So if this chocolate cake is really, really good, it's mortally sinful. And then if it's if the thing really tastes nice, it's sinful. If it's neither here nor there, like a piece of bread, that's neutral. And then if it's quite bad, it's it's her, it's it's meritorious. And if it's really bad, it's heroic. Now I thought that's that's nice, but that doesn't admit of enough. Uh, smaller classifications. So now, Mark II is just days off or on to purgatory. So if it's really, really scrumptious, then it's like 500 days, or you can make it up what you want, two years into purgatory if you eat one <laughs> of those. And um, it's just a joke. But <laughs> and, then, uh, and then if it's really bad and you eat it nonetheless, then it could be two years off purgatory. So whenever you have things that you don't like and you've you really, you're really in front of the guests, and you really ought to eat this. Then just eat it and smile, and um, and uh, and you're getting lots of time off purgatory. Um, and it doesn't mean that anything's mortally sinful. Uh, it isn't, unless the diet the doctor told you don't eat any of that. Whatever you do, don't eat chocolate. You could die of a heart attack tomorrow. Um, then we shouldn't eat chocolate, and it might be mortally sinful. But for the rest of us, it uh, it might be might be heroic, uh, uh, might be. Um, self-indulgence, but not necessarily even leniently sinful, depending on the amount. Okay, now, Arlette hasn't warned me, and she should have, because we'll just a little bit over time, but we'll come to the last one, which is prayer, fasting, and almsgiving is charity. And this is the most important. Of all the things we can live to deny ourselves uh, is that generosity, that self-giving in charity. Make life pleasant for other people. And here, simply try to smile more doesn't cost much, but it is helpful at home. Try to be more kind, more patient, especially if we're impatient with the children or other people maybe at our workplace. Try to fulfill our duties punctually for the sake of others. The meal is ready or the ironing is ready, the laundry is done, or the grass is cut for the men. Not complaining we tend to complain a lot. And if we just, every time we realize I'm complaining again, say, I want to give up complaining for that, as St. Leo the Great recommended. Give up your sins, your sinful habits. Give up complaining. Give up talking about the weather. Give up talking about uh, global financial crises. Uh, But then more positive things that are really specific. Visit the sick or the lonely. If every week, we said, at some stage during the week, I'm going to ring my auntie who is sick, and I haven't wronged her for a long time. I'm going to visit that person in the nursing home. I'm going to visit someone else in the hospital. I'm going to visit that, that lady who lost her husband a few weeks ago. And we go out of our way to visit someone. Then that's a very good thing to do for Lent. I was sick and in prison, and he visited me. Spending more time with our family if we're out too much being more courteous to other drivers on the road. Just let somebody out from the side street. Uh, It's heartening to see the number of people that will do that. Before you get there, somebody else has stopped and let them out. But if they haven't, then we do. And the driver waves. And And what's going to happen when we do that? How much time are we going to lose? Well, maybe 28.5 seconds. Um, At the most, maybe 10 seconds. So we're not going to lose anything. That person may save minutes. Waiting for this long line of traffic, which is unending in peak hour. Maybe they'll say half an hour. So that, we don't lose anything. They gain a lot. And that driver is going to do the same the next time there's someone trying to get out the side. They're, they're going to pay someone else the same courtesy we paid them. And all the drivers behind us are going to do the same. Say, oh, that was nice. Uh, and they'll do it. So we're going to spread goodness in the community. But I think that's it. And the final word on all of this, is that we fast and we live penance to prepare for Easter. And Easter is wishing everybody happy Easter and it's a it's a happy time. But if we live Lent well and we come to the end of the day and do our examination of conscience, we look back on this day and we were we were generous, we sacrificed. It cost us today and we have the joy of Easter every day because we are living that self-giving. And then it becomes truly that springtime, that, that spring cleaning, that, that new growth. And we come to the end of Lent closer to God, having grown in holiness. And one other thing is by the final thing that when when Lent comes around and Ash Wednesday is getting close, and the the instinctive thought is, Oh no, Lent is here again. Or we come to Holy Saturday and we come to the Easter vigil and say, "Thank God, it's over, That's good. I really think that's good, because it means we're living it. If Lent comes and, and people say, "Who cares, then uh, I'll Lent here next Wednesday Ash Wednesday, I've got to, I'll go to mass and get some ashes on my forehead. If that's all it that means, then we're not doing much. But if when Lent comes, we think of last Lent and it costs us a bit, and we're a little bit reluctant to, to embrace it again. I think that's a good sign, really? I'm always to do this for love, though. It's not just a matter of doing things out like of a sense of duty and try to be better than someone else, but for the love of God and for our own sins and for all the, other, all the other. I didn't even mention doing it for our sins. Anyway, I'll finish there and sorry to go on so long. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father John Flader. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.